Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of your, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body, with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather before you again. We know that every day of the week matters to you. Monday matters. Thursday matters. Our whole lives, our work before you matters. And yet we know that Sunday also holds a special place in your heart, and, and we sense you delighted that we are coming before you in worship, that you, you look forward to Sunday, you long for the time when we gather as your people and, and we sing our praises to you as those praises rise and, and lift to fill your ears and, and fill you with delight. Father, we know you don't sleep, but I, I imagine you being excited to get up before us this morning, excited to be the first one here before we unlock the building and we set up and do all the things that we do, you were here first and you had a plan for this day. That you, you have brought each and every person here and nobody is here by accident. And now as, as we sing, as we pray, as we, as we get to know one another, as we, we sit with your word open before us, we know that this brings you great joy, that this, this fills your heart to see your creation that you love, men and women made in your image, longing to draw closer to you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself. You are the eternal word. And so would your words last this morning. And Holy Spirit of God, would you do your good work in us to, to open the eyes of our hearts to all that you want us to see and who you are to see the world as it is, to see ourselves as we are, and to become more like the Son. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. In the 1950s, there was a group of young psychologists that came up with a, a new term, a new concept called self-awareness, uh, self, self-esteem, excuse me, self-esteem. And this was in the 1950s, and at a time when our economy was doing really well after the second major war, people were building houses, they were buying automobiles for the first time, they were starting companies, 
And yet our, our nation's rates of depression and anxiety and other things were actually on the rise. People were actually more unhappy after the war than they were during the war itself. And so these young psychologists were looking for a way to sort of boost the national morale, to raise the rates of, of happiness and well-being in our culture. And so they developed the concept of self-esteem. Now, self-esteem took off. It became incredibly popular. It's, it's a word that we often use in our culture now, and it's generally considered a positive concept. Now, there's only one problem at this time, and his name was Roy F. Baumeister. Now, if your name is Roy F. Baumeister, you, you have to become a professor of some kind because <laughs> you're not getting a date. Your name's Roy F. Baumeister. But Baumeister was one of these early young psychologists and he was doing all this research in the field of self-esteem, and he became sort of a, an expert in this area. He would go and he would teach, and he would appear probably on TV and things like that. The problem was that all of his research was showing that self-esteem was not actually being correlated to happiness and well-being. In fact, a lot of his research was showing the opposite, that self-esteem was, was not leading to well-being and satisfaction in life. And so being a good researcher, he, he flipped the study around. He spent 20 years following young people, children, adolescents throughout their lives. And at the end of this time, he took the ones that were the happiest, the most well-adjusted, had the highest rates of well-being. And then he looked backwards and said, what was true of them as they were growing up? What was unique about their environment? What was unique about the way they developed as individuals? And across all of these, these thousands of people that he followed, that he studied across multiple cultures, across both genders, there was only one single factor that, that every single time led to higher rates of happiness, well-being, and personal satisfaction in life. And in his words, that was a place to belong. And I feel like you, you could have saved a lot of time there if you would have just come to church, Roy. You know, 20 years of study, we could have told you that. But what we're doing in this, this series, which we're calling the same title, A Place to Belong, we're looking at the New Testament vision for community. How are we designed as human beings? How has God made us to, to live and to find happiness and to flourish in his world? And it's, it's a vision and an image that's far more relational, far more connected, far deeper than we would find in our own worlds. Over the next six weeks, we're setting a, a course for the future of this church. We're coming up on our first anniversary as a church, one year of church gatherings together. And the first year was all about setting a, a foundation for our church. And now that we have a sort of foundation, year two is all about charting a, a direction, a, a course. Where are we going from here? What is the vision that we have? Not, not just a, a vague, ambitious goal of what we want to be like as a church, but, but what, is, what do the scriptures show us? What are the biblical convictions that guide us as a local church and how we proceed from here? Now, if you're going on any kind of journey, you're setting a direction, you need some kind of map, and Romans 12 is our map, where the Apostle Paul lays out a vision for community, for life as it should be, not just within a local church, but within the kingdom of God. And throughout this chapter, we see that we are not merely consumers of the church, we're not consumers of spiritual resources, but we're actually distributors of spiritual gifts and of service. We're not merely readers of this great story of redemption, but we are participants in the great story of redemption. We're not merely attendees going to church. We are essential members in the body of Christ, and every one of us belongs, and every one of us matters.
And so today from Romans 12, I want to look at these three aspects of belonging. What is true belonging? What, what is a definition of true belonging from the scriptures? I talked about belonging last week, but I didn't actually give a definition so that I would have something to talk about this week. What is true belonging? Second, what are the threats to belonging? And then third, what is the ministry of belonging? So first of all, true belonging. And if you look at verses three through five, Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the face faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so we in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. When the scriptures talk about belonging, they talk about it in, in three different senses. There are three main ways that the scripture talks about belonging. And the first one is that we belong to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In John 3, it says the church is the bride that belongs to Jesus, the bridegroom. In John 8, it says whoever belongs to God hears and obeys his voice. In John 16, all those who belong to the Son belong also to the Father. Romans is full of the language of belongings. Chapter 7, Christ died so that we might no longer belong to ourselves, but belong to Christ and bear fruit for God. Romans 14, whether we live or die, we belong to God. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us this promise, when Christ returns, all who belong to him will be resurrected. And so the first meaning of scripture on belonging is that we belong to God. The second thing is that we no longer belong to ourselves or to the world. John 15 says, Jesus' own disciples belong to him, not to the world. Colossians 2, we no longer submit to the rules of the world because we no longer belong to it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we no longer belong to the darkness, but we belong to the light. And so we belong to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we no longer belong to ourselves or to the world. And then the third thing that the scriptures show us is that we belong to one another in the church. John 8, the children of God belong to his family forever. 1 Corinthians 12, we cannot stop belonging to this body. And then Revelation 21 and 22, at the end of days, we find ourselves among this diverse multitude with everybody praising the Son of God, the ultimate and eternal place of belonging, a holy city, a new creation. And so we belong to God. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to the world. But through God, through belonging in Christ, we actually belong to one another as well. Now, belonging is a, is a trendy word in our culture. It's, it's a word that's gotten really popular in the last few decades. Uh, the gym that I go to, it has real big on the, the front entrance, you belong. And then on every single piece of equipment, it says you belong. And I want to ask them, like, if I belong unconditionally, is it okay if I stop paying my monthly $9? Because I feel like you might not be as encouraging. I might not really belong unless I'm, I'm actually giving, I'm contributing to you. And that's fine, Planet Fitness. But a few years ago, uh, Brene Brown, a, a popular researcher, she's given a TED Talk that's been viewed like a gazillion times. Uh, she wrote a book on belonging that I thought was, was incredibly helpful. Uh, I really like Dr. Brown, I'm, I'm a brownie, but there, there are some, uh, some questions that I have about her theory. And so Brene Brown writes in, in her book, Braving the Wilderness, she defines belonging as the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us. 
which I think is a great way to put it. But she also says, true belonging is not something we achieve or accomplish with others. It's something we carry in our heart. Once we belong thoroughly to ourselves and believe thoroughly in ourselves, true belonging is ours. And that's where I, I pause and say, is it really true that we are, we are to belong to ourselves? Is it through believing in ourselves that we find true belonging? I think what she's aiming for is incredibly good. She, she says later, belonging is in our heart and not a reward for perfecting, pleasing, proving, or pretending. And it's not something that others can hold hostage or take away from us. And so I love that idea that true belonging means the end of our, our perfecting, our pleasing, our proving, our performing for one another. And yet I think that's not actually possible in the world. I think every relationship that we're in in the world is actually based on our performance. Maybe not a biological family, but for the most part, if you belong to a certain place, there's a good chance you might not belong there for long if you don't continue to fit in. Instead, it's only in God's kingdom, only through Christ, that we can actually unconditionally belong to God and to one another. All of these verses that we just read on belonging to God and belonging to one another through Christ, it shows us that true belonging is something we enter into through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And once we are made one with Christ, it's something we can never lose. True belonging is eternally ours once we have been joined to Christ, because then we are joined to a church and we belong forever. And that really does mean the end of perfecting and proving and, and performing. The, the search for true belonging is, is only met in Christ. And so my definition of, of belonging is that true belonging is being fully known and fully loved. To be, to be fully known as you are and fully loved right, right as you are. And I just don't think it's possible in our world to be fully known and, and fully loved apart from the good news about Jesus. See, if you're not known and you're not loved, you're just completely rejected. You can be known and, and not loved and still re be rejected as well. You can be loved and not fully known, and that might just mean you're fitting in somewhere. They approve of you as you fit in. But only by being fully known and fully loved at the same time do you truly belong somewhere. And it's only as God fully knows us because he's made us, and it's only as he fully loves us, not because we have first loved him, but because he set his love on us. That's the only place where we can truly belong. Well, the question is, the thing that I wrestle with so much is why is true belonging so difficult? If it's ours, why doesn't it always feel like we belong to God? Why doesn't it always feel like we belong to one another in the church? We talked last week about how so much of our hurt comes in relationship. And so as a result, our healing must come in relationship as well. But I think there are ways that we can prevent belonging from taking root in our lives, especially with one another, simply by the ways we've, we've constructed our lives. We can, we can prevent many of the threats of true belonging. And so that's the second thing. What are the threats to belonging? In an individualistic society like ours, how, how is the practice of our belonging, how we actually live out this belonging, how is it threatened? And I had a list of six things, but I'm starting to feel like that might be a little bit too much. So I'm just going to give you the one really big one, and we'll spend a minute on it. And that's that busyness causes us 
to withdraw. Busyness causes us to withdraw. It doesn't mean that we no longer belong to Christ and to his people, but, but the busyness and the hurry of our lives can threaten us to withdraw both from our convictions and from community. Now, busyness in itself is, is not a bad thing. To have a full schedule is not a bad thing. Jesus was probably the busiest person who, who ever lived. He literally had so much on his plate. Paul was busy. Moses was busy. Busyness in itself is not a bad thing. We're trying to, to cultivate a sense of hard work in our children now. We want them to have full and rich and meaningful lives. But there comes a point where, where busyness just gets to be too much, where we find ourselves in a state of, of frenzied activity that we can't find rest from. And in the same way that we are freed as Christians to question anything in our world, we talked last week about questioning upward mobility. It's not wrong to take a job, not wrong to try to move up, but we can ask questions. Is this the right move for us? Why are we doing this? And in the same way, we ought to ask questions about our busyness, about our hurry. And I think busyness has become a problem when it causes us to withdraw from these two things, our convictions and our community. Richard Foster has written, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual growth. Hurry does a sort of violence against our souls. And the more we hurry through this life, the more we find ourselves living in a, a diminished capacity, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even physically, as it takes a, a toll on our bodies. And it causes us first, perhaps, to withdraw from our convictions. I know in times of great busyness for me, I'm, I'm quick to withdraw from, from my normal routines of prayer. I'm, I'm quick to withdraw from the scriptures. I'm, I'm more tempted to move away from things that I know to be true. I'm more likely to just, just sort of waste time on, on my phone. I'm more likely to be, to be tempted towards things that I know are wrong. I'm tempted to withdraw from my own convictions. The second thing that might happen is we might withdraw from our community. We get so busy with work and activities that we begin to withdraw on a, on a consistent basis from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, everybody's tempted in different ways. It might be a temptation to stay at work till 8 p.m. Uh, for us right now, it's, it's our kids' activities. Nothing, nothing creates busyness in our lives like the potential of kids' activities. And it's mostly me because every time I get an email about some basketball camp that's available for 10-year-olds, I think, well, how many 10-year-olds are going to be at this basketball camp? And then when our kid rejoins, he's going to be a step behind. And then if he's a step behind, he'll be two steps behind. And then we'll never get the college scholarship. That's how my mind works. Everybody's tempted in different ways towards busyness, but the result is often the same, that we can withdraw from one another. My goal is not to to heap guilt on anyone. It's not to condemn anyone. It's to try to compel you over these six weeks and throughout the life of this church of a, a biblical vision of community that's so much deeper, so much richer, so much more satisfying than what our world has to offer. Verse 2 that we saw last week says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And a great author, N.T. Wright, he says, many Christians hope they'll be able to live up to something like Christian standards while still thinking the way the rest of the world thinks. It cannot be done. Genuine Christianity is a mind awake, alert, determined to understand why human life is meant to be lived one way rather than the other. 
one of the most literal translations of the New Testament word for repentance is to rethink your thinking. Isn't that a great phrase? Rethink your thinking. And taking on the mind of Christ, it gives us an eternal perspective. It, it changes the rules for how we think about our lives. Becoming a Christian frees you to, to look critically at everything in our world, to, to ask questions of everything in our lives, and to say, does this fit with God's vision for us? Does this fit with the eternal perspective that he's, he's laid out for us in the scriptures, his own description of the good life? Does this fit with our eternal trajectory? And if there's one phrase that I'm trying to eliminate from my vocabulary right now, it's, it's that it's a busy season. It's just a season. I don't know how many times I've said it's just a season over the course of my life. It's all, pretty much always been just a season. In college, it was just a season. After college, it was just a season. I'll say, well, we just had kids. It's a busy season right now. Well, I just got my first pastoral job. It's a busy season right now. We've got another kid. We've got a third kid. It's a busy season right now. We're starting a church. It's a busy season right now. It's never not been a busy season. So I look at my life and I think, maybe I'm choosing this. Maybe this season isn't being forced upon me from some outside forces that are beyond my control. Maybe I'm actually choosing the busy seasons. I know that's a revolutionary thought. Instead, if I'm being honest, I realize, you know what? We have stepped into a, a busy type of life. We have taken on a lot. We have chosen literally everything that's around us. Like we've chosen to have kids. We've chosen to be part of a church plan, and that's why we're busy. And, and as I take responsibility for that, I actually find a lot more freedom in it. I find that I can say no to things because I actually have some measure of control over my life. Now, when you have kids, you pretty much give up a lot, and then there's forces, you know, on you that you're just out of your control. But again, we chose to have them, and we're happy with them. <laughs> as we think about our, our lives, one of the things I like to do and it's a little bit heavy, but, it, but it's to picture my life at, at 85 with cancer in the hospital. And so think about yourself at that point, at, at the end of your life, and I know you're like, that's heavy. Bro, we were just hanging out, I know. No, picture the end of your life. What do people say at the end of their lives? I wish I would have worked a little bit more. I wish I would have taken that one extra promotion that moved me you know, here or there. Well, they always say, I wish I had more time with my family. I wish I would have given myself to the things that matter most. And the role of a pastor, the role of your church family is to remind you of those things now, not 50, 60, 70 years from now. To establish a, short, a sort of life that, that you'll be proud that you've lived when you're looking back at that, at that stage, when you're looking back with the, the perspective of wisdom. And to even think beyond that, not just 85 with cancer, but think eternally. All eternity in heaven, in the new creation with God and his people. And then work backwards and say, how do I make this decision that's before me right now? What's a decision I wish I, I will wish I would have made when I'm in that eternal place, our eternal lives have already started. But in the new creation, what will I wish that I would have decided now? Rethink your thinking. All right, now for the fun part. The third thing is the ministry of belonging. In verses six through eight, it's not in your bulletin, but let me, let me read these. Paul says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. 
If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is, if it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, these are, are the spiritual gifts, gifts that are given to us from Christ through the Holy Spirit for the building up of his church. There's a great article by Tim Keller that I'm going to send out to the community group leaders. You might uh, want to work through it this week in your groups. He defines spiritual gifts as an ability that comes to you freely, therefore a gift, for the purpose of ministering to needs, service, so as to build up the Christian community in size and in depth. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus' kingly power, his, his own being, has been shared with his people as he extends his reign and his rule on this earth through his church. And so his power that's going to heal the world completely one day, physically and socially and spiritually, it's already at work in the world through you and me, through sisters and brothers in Christ. And so that's why I can say we're not consumers, we're distributors of spiritual life. We're not attendees going to church, we're essential members in the body of Christ. We're not readers of a great story, we're participants in the story of the renewal of all things. We are an active part of what God is doing in the world as Jesus works through us, through our spiritual gifts. And so there are three main types of gifts or categories throughout the scriptures. You see this in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. The first category is helping gifts. And these are gifts that are based on recognizing and meeting the needs of the church and others. This includes encouragement, helping, healing, shepherding, serving, generosity, and mercy. In addition to the helping gifts, you have the speaking gifts, and these are abilities based on understanding and articulating truth. And speaking gifts include evangelism, teaching, discernment, and prophecy. And the third category of gifts are the leading gifts, which are abilities based on understanding direction and group needs. And this includes leadership, administration, faith, and the apostolic gift, which is sort of starting new things. And so we have these three types of gifts, helping, speaking, and leading gifts, and each one of us has a certain set of these gifts, and then they will grow in time the more we use them and the more we serve the body of Christ. And so the question is, how do I, how do I discover my gifts? How do I grow in gifts? And the easy answer is to come to community group this week, but I'll give you a little bit of a preview, is that there's three ways to discover and grow in your gifts, and it's opportunity, what's needed, what, what are the needs around me? Second is ability, what am I actually good at? What if, I, if I've done something in the past and I look back and it went well, that shows some ability. So opportunity, ability, and then third, desire. What do I enjoy doing? One of the best things in, in our lives is when these three things come together, when they, when they sort of converge into a role or into a place in a local church or ministry or even in the world, where we can see our opportunity and our ability and our desire all come together for the good of other people. Now, I would recommend to start with opportunity. Where is the need? What's the need around you? Because often if we start with our abilities, we might overestimate what our abilities are in one area and underestimate them in another area. If we start with our desire, we might not realize that we have this huge gift in some other area that we didn't realize. 
And spiritual gifts are different from our personality. They're different from the things that we do in our day jobs that tend to go well. But these are gifts given through the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church. And so no matter what your unique gifts are, one sure way to build the body of Christ is to make space for each other, to make room for one another, to use whatever your gift is, whatever, whatever God has given you to build up the people, use that to make room for one another. That might mean making room in your schedule, it might mean making room in your heart, but make room for other people in the church. And this is one of the great paradoxes of Christianity. To, to find your life is, is to give it away. To find yourself is to lose yourself. In the same way, if we want to find a place of belonging, we actually do it by creating belonging for other people. If we serve others, if we create a space for other people, then we find that we always have people who want to be with us, who long to have us in their presence. When we create a place to belong for others, we always have a place to belong. And so as we close today, I want to I leave you with this image of how, how remarkable, how beautiful it is that God has given us these gifts. In, in an ancient tradition, whenever a, a, a nation and a king would conquer another army in a battle, one of the things they would do is the king and the army would return back to their home after taking all of the best treasures, all the gold, all the silver, all the best you know, robes, all the best food from, from that conquered village. They would take them and they would bring them back to their own people. And so you can imagine this march coming through the streets of your own city and it's a king riding on the back of like a horse-drawn wagon and he's giving out these gifts to every single person. It was such a common tradition after a war that it probably influenced Paul's thinking as he was trying to describe how Jesus is giving us these gifts. In the same way, Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death. When he went to the cross, when he rose from the grave, he conquered all the forces of evil in this world. He established an eternal victory over Satan, sin, and death. And now in giving out these spiritual gifts, he's returning to his people, handing out the very best things that he, that he has to each one of us. He's giving us literal gifts, physical demonstrations of his victory. That's what the spiritual gifts are. They're demonstrations of the great victory of Christ and that Christ is now ministering through his people. And so the gifts he's given out, they're not physical things. It's not gold and sil silver. He's actually giving parts of himself. After his victory at the cross and, and through the resurrection, he is now giving out good and incredible gifts, but he's giving out pieces of himself. And so his servant heart, he gives to the church. His, his generous spirit, he gives to the church. His teaching gift, he gives to the church. His encouraging spirit, he gives to the church. His leading, his, his administration gift, he gives to the church. And he does so because he is continuing to act in our world. He is continuing to build his kingdom in this place. And yet he's doing it through our gifts. He's continuing his teaching ministry, but through the church. He's continuing his healing ministry, but through the church. He's continuing to serve us, but through one another, through us. And it's remarkable if we think about it and we ask, what has he given us? What has he given you? 
What are the gifts that he has given you? What parts of himself has he given you to serve the body? Why why has he given those things to you? How can you use them here? How can you use them in, in the greater body of Christ and in the city? Just in the last two weeks, as I've been thinking about this passage, I've been so overwhelmed by this reality that Christ is giving us parts of himself. I've seen Lindsay and and Dan and Nicole come in here and and set up almost every single week to serve selflessly. And as I see them and I see their service, it's not just them that I see, but it's Christ. When I've seen Phoebe ask if she can share a word from the Lord with somebody and then watched as that prophetic word brings healing and, and comfort and change to somebody, it's not just her that I'm seeing, but it's Christ ministering through her. As I see administrative gifts in Sarah and Mark, I'm not just seeing them, but I'm seeing Christ through them. As I see Jess and Allison encourage my wife and build her up, I don't just see them, but I see Christ through them. In each and every one of you, I see spiritual gifts. And it's you, it's really you, it's your gift, but it's also the face of Christ and the the blessing of Christ moving through you to build up the church. And I love that about my position, that I have this vantage point where I get to see all of your gifts. I get to see so much of Christ working through you to build up the church. And to bring it full circle, I'm reminded of the opening words of this chapter, in view of the mercies of God. In view of the mercies of God that frames the whole chapter, in view of of the specific acts of goodness and redemption that he's brought about in our world, in view of the mercies of God, he's given us gifts. He's called us to be transformed. He's called us to rethink our thinking. And we remember these mercies of God. I was reminded this week at the old tradition that churches have red doors. Have you seen this before? If you go downtown, most of the really old churches have these red doors. You can say that your church has a red door because we started in my living room. We have a red door. It's kind of the same, totally the same. But the tradition there is, is rich. It, it, it was meant to be a reminder that we enter into the church by the blood of Christ. That if you're like me, all, all your, your desires to fit in, to belong, to find a place, to be part of something bigger than yourself, it might still lead you to feeling like you, you haven't measured up, you haven't done enough. You might feel like you're constantly getting it wrong. You might feel like you haven't pulled it together and gotten it right. And the red doors would serve as a reminder that you don't, you don't enter this church because of what you've done. You don't enter this church because you've proved yourself. You don't enter this church because you've cleaned up your life, but you enter this church through the blood of Christ. That we only have a place to belong because of his shed blood. And that covers us now. If it's the same way into the church for all of us, then we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to hide. We can be broken. We can be ourselves. We can meet each other as we are because we have all come in through the same doors. We've all come in through this gift of grace given to us through Jesus. And so together as a community of, of redeemed people, having, having entered through the blood of Christ, we are finally fully known. We are finally fully loved. And at the end of all this searching, we finally belong. Let's pray.